Isaiah 65, verse 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy. In all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Amen. Isaiah 49, reading from verse 14. But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palm of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Your builders make haste. Your destroyers and those who laid you waste go out from you. Lift up your eyes all round and see. They all gather, they come to you. As I live, declares the Lord, you shall put them all on as an ornament. You shall bind them on as a bride does. Surely your waste and your desolate places and your devastated land, surely now you will be too narrow for your inhabitants and those who swallowed you up will be far away. The children of your bereavement will yet say in your ears, the place is too narrow for me, make room for me to dwell in. Then you will say in your heart, who has borne me these? I was bereaved and barren, exiled and put away. But who has brought up these? Behold, I was left alone. From where have these come? Thus says the Lord God, behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations and raise my signal to the peoples, and they shall bring your sons in their arms, and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Kings shall be your foster fathers, and their queens your nursing mothers. With their faces to the ground, they shall bow down to you <clears throat> and lick the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. Can the prey be taken from the mighty, or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? For thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken, 
and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you, and I will save your children. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh, and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine. Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord your Saviour and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Thus says the Lord, Where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you were sold, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. Why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there no one to answer? Is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, by my rebuke, I dry up the sea, I make the rivers a desert. Their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens, he awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backwards. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheek to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. Heavenly Father God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the power of your word. Thank you that it is truth for us and it is good for us. Father God, I pray that your spirit will be moving tonight uh, through your word into our hearts. Lord, may we uh, leave here changed. May we leave here more in love with Jesus as a consequence. We pray all these things in your mighty name. Amen. Well, this is um, our next uh, instalment in Isaiah, and we're picking up exactly where we left off last week, the very next uh, verse, in fact. And as ever, uh, for my sake as well as yours, and whether you've been here for the whole of the series or not, let me remind you of where we are in the book. And if you remember that the whole of the first section, the first half, if you like, of this remarkable prophecy leading up to chapter 40 is, is posing one overarching question. And that is, how can faithless and righteous Jerusalem become once again faithful, righteous, and glorious? How can the Jerusalem that is spoken of in chapter 1, verse 21, that was once faithful and righteous but has, I quote, become a whore and is filled with murderers, that's shocking language, how can this faithless and righteous city become the promised city of verse 26 of chapter 1? the restored city that will once again be called the city of righteousness and of faithfulness. 
That's the promise in Isaiah, that that is going to happen. But how? And this question stands all the more starkly, doesn't it? And we see that the people of this city have been carried off into Babylon. That's who Isaiah is writing to. The people of God's city who are now under the rule of a foreign power, slaves to a pagan leader, all because of their unfaithfulness and their idolatry. They are destitute and on the face of it alone. However, this question also stands starkly against the knowledge of the fact that the city of Jerusalem herself has been razed to the ground and is utterly broken. She too is destitute and alone. The city of Zion, God's holy city. And therein lies the heart of what we come to tonight. For we know that there is a problem with the people of God, that's why they are in exile. But there is also a problem with Jerusalem herself, the city of God. And so tonight it is Zion, the city herself, that we turn to first. What is God going to do about her? How is she going to be made new? Well, as we come to tonight's passage, we see that that is the question that Zion kind of herself asks. And she does so by way of tragic lament. As this once beautiful, faithful city now lies broken and bruised. And it is in this reality that she cries out to God in bitter pain. And that's where we pick up our narrative in verse 14. And that brings us to our first point of only two tonight on your service sheets. The lament of the city of Zion and the promises of God. After the highs of the song of joy, you'll see in verse 13 that we ended with last week, we see creation breaking out in praise at the, the promised restoration of the people of Israel that, that God promises for them. Immediately, verse 14, we are reminded now of the situation of the city of God. We are brought back down to earth with a bump. Verse 14, but Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me, my Lord has forgotten me. And you can understand, from everything that we've just been talking about, why Zion would be saying this. As a once mighty beautiful city that has been utterly laid bare and abandoned, it it really is quite a, a tragic thing if you think about it. Imagine Edinburgh, or London, or New York, any of the major cities in the world where, amongst all the awful things that happen in these places in a fallen world, we know there is vibrancy and life and and babies being born and work being attended to and people interacting with one another and laughter. Now imagine these cities, imagine Edinburgh, and of all days this is an appropriate way of thinking about this. Imagine Edinburgh taken over by a foreign power, whereby the, the Walter Scott Monument is destroyed, and that the castle is blown up, and, and um, Arthur's seat is pitted with shells and landmines. And everyone has either been taken away as prisoners of war, or they've been evacuated. There are deserted streets, empty houses, abandoned shopping centers. Imagine Edinburgh looking like a shelled, bombed-out, abandoned Syrian city, if you will. It's not hard to see the utter despair that an entire loss of a city would bring even more so considering that this is God's city. For this is where Zion is. This is, what ha- this is what has happened to God's city. She is a shadow, if that, of her former self. A ruin and not a very glorious one. 
And so she cries, The Lord has forsaken me, my Lord has forgotten me. And so God immediately responds. And what a response he gives. Verse 15. Can a woman forget her nursing child? God says. That's the picture that God draws up. The answer to that is definitively not. It's almost impossible for a woman to forget her child. A woman who has given birth to her baby is literally programmed in her DNA to respond to its cry. Her heart breaks at her baby's pain. Her world falls apart when her child is in danger or hurting. Well, says God, I go even further than that nursing mother in my remembrance of you, Zion. Even these DNA-programmed mothers may forget their own children, yet I will not forget you. And God continues, verse 16, Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are always before me. We move from, from nursing mothers to tattoos. Your, your name is inked into my skin, Zion. Every time I move, I see your name etched into my flesh. The permanent mark in my hand that cannot be removed or washed away. I have a permanent reminder on my body that you are my city and I am your God. In that way, I permanently see your walls before me. And there's more. God continues. We, we move from tattoos to, to, to bridal wear. Verse 17 and 18, builders will run to you, Zion, and those who destroyed you will flee from you, and all the people who will fill you will adorn you as if you were putting on a dress or ornaments for a bride. You will be rebuilt, in other words. You will be filled, in other words. You will be made beautiful again. As I live, says the permanently living God of eternity, so is the permanence of my perpetual remembrance of you, city of Zion. Zion cries, the Lord has forgotten me, my Lord has forsaken me. The living God says, you have no idea. You have no idea how much I remember you. Like a mother to her child, like a permanent mark in my flesh, like a bride adorned for her husband, so I will remember you and restore you. The lament of Zion's forgetfulness and forsakenness is met with God's promise of radical remembrance. But the imagery doesn't stop there, because if a city losing its inhabitants doesn't get us to the heart of how awful this is, then maybe the image of a mother losing her child will. For that is the image that we turn to next. And it is a brutal one. For not only does Zion, verse 14, feel forgotten and forsaken, but she also, verse 21, feels that she is a widow without children. I was bereaved and barren, says Zion. I was exiled and put away. It's a brutally striking image, isn't it? In fact, there are two images here. I am like a widow, says Zion, who is barren and unable to give birth, unable to produce life. I have no descendants. I am also like a mother who has been bereaved, who has had children, but who has lost them. 
Both images paint the bleakest of pictures. Both images detail the most raw, bitter, painful loss a human, I think, can endure. The pain of not being able to have children, the pain of not being able to keep your children. You know, these, um, these passages are given to us all on the staff team early in the year, and they chop and change slightly as we work our way through our series, and under God's providence and in his wisdom, this is the passage that I preach tonight. There's no planning behind that. But having lost my daughter this year, goodness do I feel with all integrity the weight of this imagery. And even I don't know the half of it. Especially when it comes to not being able to have children at all. I simply cannot imagine. And for those of you who feel this imagery keenly, I understand as much as my experience allows. It is heartbreaking to be reminded of the desperate hurt that this image is meant to conjure up. And I'm sorry this is so raw. But this is the picture that God paints so clearly. And he paints it because for most of us here, the thought of this doesn't bear thinking about. And for a few of us here, the reality of this is all we can think about. That's why God paints this picture. Because we all really, really feel it, whether by imagination or by experience. Which means we all really feel all the more the weight of God's incredible response. This is what I am, says God's city, barren, bereft, childless, mourning, empty, alone. But what does God say to her? Well, turn to verse 20. He says an astonishing thing. The children of your bereavement, the children that you lost, Zion, will yet say in your, year, in your ears, the place is too narrow for me, make room for me to dwell in. Can you imagine... That's the question of incredulity we're meant to ask in this passage. Can you imagine? Can you imagine saying that to someone who's lost their child or who can't have children? If you'll allow me, it's like Jen and me one day seeing Charlotte bursting through the door, her being ever so slightly annoyed that there isn't enough room on the sofa for her, and and Toby's hogging all the toys. It's like the woman who can't have children being inundated with kids turning up at her door saying, yes, you're our mother, this is our home, we need to come in, we're hungry, that's your job. I'm not being glib. Of all people, I wouldn't be. That's the image God God paints. And as we try and get our heads around what all this would even begin to look like in real life, so does Zion herself. She doesn't believe it. Verse 21. She asks incredulously, Who has borne me these? Who who has brought up these children? Behold, I was left alone. From where have these children come? It's madness. How did that happen? And this excessive imagery doesn't stop there. Verse 22. Not only do all these children turn up, but they shall be brought from all over the world. Verse 23. They shall have kings as foster fathers, queens as nurses. As one preacher put it, you have Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip as your go-to babysitters. And they come and they kneel at your feet and they care for your children. And on top of all of this, you, Mother Zion, and these, your children, will be protected like no other family on the face of the earth. Verse 25, For thus says the Lord, even captives of the mighty shall be taken. 
and the prey of the tyrant be rescued, for I will contend with those who contend with you, and I will save your children. All those who hold you captive, all those who wish to crush you and your children, they will have me to contend with, says the living God of eternity. To Zion's lament of barrenness and bereavement, God promises miraculous, outrageous abundance and almighty, impenetrable protection. Zion says, I was bereaved and barren, exiled and put away. God says, O Zion, you have no idea. There will not be room for the children I will give back to you. Indeed, verse 19, surely now you will just be too narrow for your inhabitants. And that is the nature of the promise, isn't it? If Zion the city is the mother, then the exiled people of Israel are her children. God is promising that the two will one day be reunited. Zion's children, exiled Israel, will fill her streets again. That's the promise. The desperate laments of a broken Zion are met with the astonishing promises of a faithful God. And these are the lengths that God will go to to make everything right, to make Zion right again. She will be remembered, she will be restored, her streets will be filled more abundantly than before, and she will be protected. And why does God do all this? Well, because he loves Zion. Most certainly, the pictures here are incredibly emotive because they are so personal. He is intimately involved with the remembrance and restoration and abundant filling and lifelong protection of this city. Ultimately, however, it is because he wants to know Zion who he is. I do this, says God, for, verse 23, then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. And this knowledge of who God is, it's not just for Zion, but for the rest of the world as well. Verse 26, I crush your enemies, says God, so that all flesh shall know that I am the Lord, your Savior, your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Israel. The desperate laments of a broken Zion are met with the astonishing promises of a faithful God. However, the reality is, there's still a problem with Zion, isn't there? The reason that she is in this mess, lamenting the loss of her children, is because she's been laid waste and and her children are in exile. Why is that the case? Well, this is where the prophecy given to Isaiah turns to next, because God, who has been addressing the city of Zion in her bereavement, now turns at the beginning of chapter 50 to addressing the people of Zion. And as he does, does so, he points the finger at them as the source of this tragedy. This brings us to our second point, the faithlessness of the people of Zion and the obedience of the servant. Read with me um, verse 1 of chapter 50. Thus says the Lord, where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you were sold and for your, your transgressions your mother was sent away. 
as we've seen. Zion is the grieving mother, and Israel exiles are her children. They are separated from each other. Why? Well, because of the faithlessness of her own children. Zion has been sent away. She has been handed a certificate of divorce because of the sins of the children. Can you see? For your iniquities, Israel, you were sold into slavery, and for your transgressions, Israel, your mother, the city of Zion, was sent away. This horrific separation that has left Zion divorced, alone, barren, empty, is all brought about because of the unfaithfulness of the children. Over the past weeks, we've been sitting deeply, haven't we, in in the imagery of idols that do not sustain and will not fulfill. They will not do what God promises to do here. They will not remember or restore. They will not fill abundantly. They will not protect. They cannot do these things. And yet the people of Israel in their unfaithfulness have prostituted themselves with these idols and their false promises. And so they reap the rewards of that. They are judged. The people have been sent away. The city has been handed her certificate of divorce because of gross unfaithfulness on behalf of her children. The whole thing is an utter tragedy. And the whole tragedy lies on the heads of the children. I've not forgotten you, Zion. Your children, they they forgot me. And of course, as we read in verse 2 of chapter 50, the tragedy is compounded by the fact that there is nothing Israel or Zion can do about it. For verse 2 of chapter 50, there is no one, not a soul on earth, who can help restore this brokenness and separation of city and people. There is no one who can answer God. Why, says God, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there no one to answer me? In other words, who could step in the breach between me and almighty faithful God and you, small, faithless, broken Israel? Who could approach me to sort this out? For when I asked, there was no one who could respond. And that's because you're all faithless. And here lies the question of our passage, the the question that we asked at the beginning of the sermon, the question that sits over the whole of the series, how can it be then when Israel is so faithless and lost and the city of Jerusalem is so broken and ruined because of her sin where there is no representative righteous enough to be able to answer God, how can it be that God will bring about these promises that we've just been looking at in chapter 49? How can Zion be made new and it be that all her children and more will come flooding back into her streets? How can there be renewal and reunion between these two parties? Well, what needs to happen is for there to be someone who can answer God. Someone who is faithful. And that is exactly what God provides a person who we've been gradually introduced to over the whole course of this prophecy, a person described as the servant. And it is he who now speaks in verses 4 to 6. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. 
Morning by morning he awakens, he awakens my ear to hear as those who were taught. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. What is it this servant will perfectly do? He will perfectly obey. Verse 4, I am the one who has been given the ability to speak by God himself, says the servant. With these words, I am the one who is able to sustain you who are weary, Zion. And I can speak and I can sustain, I can save, because, verse 5, I am resolutely obedient. Just look at the lengths that the servant goes to to, remind, to remain obedient to God. I was not rebellious. I did not turn back. In fact, I presented my back to those who struck me. I didn't hide my face from disgrace and spitting. Indeed, I would rather go through all that, says the servant, than be disobedient to my God. I am the one, in other words, whom God is searching for and asking for in verse 2, says the servant. I am the one who can answer God. I am the one who can stand in the breach. I am the one who has been given the right to save because I am the one who does what you, faithless Israel, cannot do. I perfectly obey God. And because of this radical obedience... This one man can truly say also that God is on his side. God is not against him. God is with him. We read that in verses 7 to 9. Read verse 8 with me. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? In other words, who can stand against this man if God is on his side? No one. He is the most powerful man in the whole of creation. He he has the God who, who crushes the enemies of God's people over in chapter 39 and 49 on his side. This servant is remarkable. And if this is true, if there is such a man who is obedient to God to the point of intense personal suffering, and if there is such a man who who has God resolutely behind him, then does that man not warrant listening to? Well, that is exactly where Isaiah goes to next. Verse 10. Who among you, people of Israel, fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Can you see? It it makes sense, doesn't it? If the servant exists who is obedient and with God and who can really save you, Zion, listen to him. Obey him, fear him. He's the one who is going to bring you back and reunite you with your brand new city. Zion, in the light of your tragedy, he is the one who is going to sustain you in your weariness and bring you back to fullness. The question is who is this servant? Well, we know who it is, but before we get there, and in order to bring this prophecy home correctly, let's just take a bit of a breather and ask ourselves one more question. And that is, why is the city of God so important? And what does it have to do with the people of God? 
Well, it is eminently obvious, isn't it, that without the city of Zion, there is no people of Zion. Without God's city, there is no God's people. The the two can't exist without the other because they're not meant to. Consider the threefold promise to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 12. God promised Abraham children, a land for them to inhabit, that is Israel, represented by the city of Jerusalem, and abundant blessing given by the presence of God himself. Those are the three promises to God's people, children, city, and God's rule and blessing. And here in Isaiah, we see all three separated. The children and the city are separate from one another because of Israel's unfaithfulness. And as a consequence, both city and people are no longer under God's rule and blessing. There is no temple. There is nowhere for God to reside. There is nowhere for Israel to call home. There is no one for Zion to call her children. All seems lost. Except God has not forgotten them. He's still acting on their behalf. And in order to make things right again, God needs to reunite people and city. The city where he himself dwells, in the center of the temple, day and night, where they can become the real people of God again. You see, in Isaiah, both city and people are constantly mourning each other. The people are mourning the loss of Zion, the loss of the temple. They know they are nothing without her. And Zion, in turn, is mourning the loss of her children. She knows she is nothing without them fulfilling her. And God stands in the center of this tragedy, and he reminds them both that they will be reunited. And that he is going to do it. So that everyone may know that he is the Lord, Israel's Redeemer, the mighty God. And of course, this is what happens. As we know, the exiles come back. The city is once again filled with her children. God's promises in chapter 49 become vividly true. But as we know, there is something missing. For the immediate return from exile is not all that God was concerned about. And we get a hint of God's greater concern in chapter 65, 17 to 25, the, the passage that Robin read out for us earlier in the service. Just flick there for a moment. I'll just read a few verses of this. 65 verse 17. For behold, says God, I create new heavens and a new earth. And the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. Forever. And behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. What a picture. What a city. In this city, all the former things, the awful things that have happened, they will not be remembered. This Jerusalem will be a joy and her people a gladness forever. In this Jerusalem, there will be no more weeping or crying or distress in her streets. It is a city where, verse 25, the wolf will lie down with the lamb and and the lion will eat next to the ox. No one shall be hurt or destroyed. It's an amazing city. But that is not the Jerusalem that the exiles come back to, is it? We read in Nehemiah that after only a few decades, after the return, after the building of the walls, Jerusalem is just as faithless and fallen and wretched as she was before. She'll fall again. There are more tears in the Jerusalem the exiles return to, that the people weep over her because they miss her glory. She's just not the same. 
There has to be another city, doesn't there? And there is. And that city ultimately is found in Revelation 21. Then, writes John, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. What a striking day to be reminded of these verses again. Doesn't that city sound strikingly like the city in Isaiah 65? It has exactly the same language to describe it. And that's because it is this city that Isaiah in his prophecy is looking forward to ultimately. Future Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, eternal Jerusalem. You see what's going on here with Zion? The focus in chapter 50 isn't just on the old city being rebuilt and her inhabitants returning as much as for the immediate hearers that was going to happen. At the heart of this talk of the renewal of city and people is the idea of a creation of a whole new Jerusalem. We pick up hints of that kind of better, bigger city in our passage tonight. Where do all these children come from that will fill Zion's barren streets? Verse 22 of chapter 49. They will come from the nations, not just Babylon. God will raise his hand and the nations and the people will give up their own to become children of Zion. You see, this city is not just for Israel or just for the Jews then, but the whole of humankind. Where Revelation 7, every tribe, every language, and every nation will now be represented. It is this city that is being foretold in Isaiah 50. It is this future, massive, perfect, global city that is represented partially in Zion and her temporal restoration and Israel's temporal return. It is this new city that is seen perfectly in eternity when all the earth is rolled up and God presents his new eternal Jerusalem where there really will be no crying or tears or bereavement or barrenness. Where we will live with God himself. Not having to visit him in a temple but but right up against him. Israel needs her city. Without Zion, all is lost for them. They cannot reside with God. They cannot be truly Israel. There is nowhere for them to be saved to. We, like Israel, as global humanity, also need a city. Otherwise, all is lost for us as well. If there is no eternal perfect city, mankind has no hope. We, as believers, have no hope. There is nowhere for us to reside with God. There is nowhere that we can be truly human. There is nowhere we can be saved to. The temporal restoration of Zion is but a picture of a much, much greater city with uncountable numbers of inhabitants. That is New Jerusalem. This is Jerusalem 2.0. And this is where God's servant comes in as we close. For how do we, disobedient, faithless people, like the faithless Israelites, 
we who have no representative among us who can stand before a holy God and answer him, how do we get into this city? How are we to be restored to Zion rather than judged for an eternity? For that is our only other option. Well, who is this servant? Who fulfills this description of perfect obedience? Who is the only one who is obedient enough to answer God and save the weary? Who does God resolutely have on his side? Who can take us into this city? We know that there is only one man. One man alone who perfectly obeys God to this extent in Isaiah 50. To the extent that he is mocked and scorned, spat on and disgraced, beaten and mutilated and humiliated. Ultimately, he went all the way to a cross and still didn't buckle. There is only one man who has God on his side. And that man is Jesus. And it is in Jesus as God's obedient, suffering servant that all of this prophecy now fits together. We enter New Jerusalem because of the obedience of Jesus Christ, God's Son. As he is mocked and scorned and beaten for his people, so his people, that is, all who trust in him, will instead receive life and life everlasting with God in his city, with his children, under his rule and blessing. You see, this prophecy isn't to the Jews now or for the physical restoration of their land now in our day and age. That's not what's going on here. Revelation 21 helps us get the eternal perspective here. This prophecy was to the Jews then for the sake of their children and their children who would one day set their eyes on the servant, Jesus Christ, and obey him. It was for the sake of the Jews then so that they may put their faith and trust in the promise of the servant, Jesus, who was to come. So they too, by faith, could be restored, not to earthly Zion, but ultimately to heavenly Zion. That's what's going on here. So finally, what do we do? Well, Isaiah tells the people of God what to do. Verse 10 of chapter 50, Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Listen to God's servant, says Isaiah. And that exhortation is given to us today by God himself. For as Peter, James and John climbed Mount Hermon on a dark night, not long before Jesus was to be crucified, a remarkable thing happened. Jesus was transfigured before them, and God spoke, and this is what he said. Behold, this is my son, listen to him. For it is only through my servant, and my servant only, Jesus Christ, on the back of his perfect obedience and his death on the cross, that you faithless humanity will be able to enter my eternal city. Let's pray as we close. <clears throat> Heavenly Father God, we thank you so, so much for this astonishing news. 
Heavenly Father, thank you that you are preparing for us a place where we will reside with you in eternity. Thank you very much, Heavenly Father, for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who became man and who was resolutely obedient to the point of death so that we may enter this city, so that we may know you, the living God, so that we can stand next to Jesus, saved and redeemed and clean and faithful. Heavenly Father God, we thank you so much for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Almighty King, may we be struck by how wonderful this is. May we be really moved. And may all of us really listen to Jesus. For those of us here who are fighting against that, may we really listen to Jesus and put our trust and our faith and our hope in him so that we may too have eternal life. We pray all these things with great thanksgiving and with great joy. In the name of Jesus. Amen.